loss helps us define our lives. By allowing our grief to matter, we discover our own strengths and embrace our authentic selves. Welcome to Good Grief with your host, Cheryl Jones. Get ready to be inspired, to create a deeper life, to make your time on Earth much more meaningful. Now, here is Cheryl Jones. Hello, I'm your host, Cheryl Jones, and I want to welcome you to Good Grief, where we talk each week about the transformations that can come from loss. Today, I'm welcoming Neil Barrison. Neil's a counselor and interfaith chaplain who specializes in grief, loss, and transition. His clients are often experiencing overwhelming heartache on the tailwinds of divorce, the death of someone dear, or from a life-altering struggle. Neil meets individuals where they are and helps them reflect on, metabolize, and reshape their loss in a safe, sacred, peaceful space. The work may include increasing their ability to cope with change and vulnerability and the anxiety and despair that can emerge. Neil may use poetry to provide additional comfort, deepen the space, and encourage reflection and opening. He wrote an article, a chaplain's notebook, Poetry as Spiritual Nourishment, that was published in the Journal of Pastoral Care and Counseling in March of 2020. Neil moved into chaplaincy work as an encore pathway following the death of his parents five weeks apart in 2014. The experience of caring for and companioning them in their final nine months of life was profound and life-changing. The subject of this show. Welcome, Neil. Thank you, Cheryl. Happy to be here. Happy to have you. Let's start with that, that uh, because, you know, of course, the, the theme of this show is how losses change us, um, bring grief, yes, but also change us in very very valuable ways, um, including for you, this new relationship to poetry, to um, spiritual care. So maybe you can tell us something about that, um, your parents, you know, um, your relationship before their deaths, your relationship since then, a little bit of your story here. Sure, sure, Cheryl. Um, my parents um, were very dear people, and I had what I'll call a normal life childhood. Um, they were very different, though. My my dad was uh, sort of typical in the in a, a male kind of stereotype of being more cerebral, but a very loving and gentle man at the same time. My father, my my father, my mother, on the other hand, was um, really someone who. Um, had had a rough childhood. And so a lot of those years growing up were her in therapy doing deep work for probably 20 years she did that work in trying to uh, help her with matters of the heart and vulnerability. Um, some of those, again, predicated on some really tough um, um, parenting experiences. Um, and it was, uh, you know, my dad, and I'm going to jump forward rather quickly, my dad, uh, in approximately 2009, was diagnosed with uh, sarcoma, which is bone cancer, in, in his leg. And he had to have his leg amputated. Um, and in a sense, that illness, the trajectory for that illness was about five years. He died five years later. Um, medicine doesn't often get it right like that. My mother uh, uh, was uh, diagnosed 
with lymphoma in the summer of 2013. Uh, we thought we were making progress. She was, uh, she had chemo, intensive chemo. She had the, what we were told was the good kind. If you're going to get lymphoma, there are definitely better ones and worse ones to get. Sure. And in terms of that, Cheryl, um, she was in remission in the fall of 2013, and then it came back very quickly. And uh, again, di she died five weeks after my dad in, in March of 2014. So that's a that's such a huge one-two one punch, <laughs> you know, when your parents die close together like that. Um, that can be so disorienting as well as grievous. Um, I realized after my mother died, my, my father died uh, some years before her. And so I didn't realize it until she died that, that they were kind of the wall I bumped up against. Mm -hmm. and, and so when she died, I felt this sort of weightlessness, if you will. Uh, oh. Like there was nothing there. And I imagined at the time, if both parents die close together, that would be amplified. But I don't know if you experienced anything like that. Um, I can't say I did, and part of that is that, you know, this is about the dynamics and the relationships, the relationship we have with each of our parents. Um, I, you know, it wasn't, tur there, there wasn't turbulence, but I wasn't dearly close to them and leaning on them for support. I had a terrific partner, my wife, and three children, and who couldn't be more loving and generous to me. And so the combination of those things made my grieving not perhaps as traumatic or as with the kind of suffering that people do when it's unexpected loss, when it's, mm. um, and I guess my mom was, you know, was less expected, but my dad's was very much expected. He was on hospice uh, from probably August until he died uh, the following February. Right. So I can't say that, but I, but you're that the term you use. Did you use the word weightless? Yes. And that's yeah. a beautiful. I did. I wasn't yeah. in a traumatic place with either uh -huh. of them. You know, both because uh -huh. they weren't really damaging people. You know, to any great degree, and I'd done work right. Mm. But it was mm. more a matter of um, this thing you sort of have in your psyche that was removed. Mm. Uh, there were people. Yeah. There were people who turned to me and said, "You're you're a parentless now, you know. You're the, the orphan, the uh, orphan thing, thing. No matter the age, right? <laughs> yeah, really. And I, I was kind of struck by that. It wasn't the way I was thinking about it, and I don't know why. That's just that's not for here, or or the that's for the that's a question for the ages, really. Why right. is it that I didn't think of myself? Because as an grief orphan? is well, because <laughs> grief is in the eye of the griever. <laughs> <laughs> you sure had that. your own experience there. <laughs> um, but, you know, it was uh, a, you know, it was still navigating all that. I mean, we're talking about caregiving and we're talking about all the things you have to navigate as a child. Um, was not always easy, uh, for sure. But being able to be with them in those last nine months, l literally every day, was... Um, affirming in its own way to be able to give back something to your parents after they've given you this life of being a parent to you. It was um, pretty awesome and it helped me also get much more comfortable around death and dying. 
You know, I listened to a, a, an interview of yours that was on your website, and what stood out is uh, you, you kept saying you were lucky, and I, I so understood that. One of the most lucky things you talked about was your workplace paying you and not expecting you to be there for that period of time. Uh, uh. That's so rare even in grief when a loss has happened, right? But yes. for someone to have recognized that that time was very precious and that um, if they could, they wanted to support you having it without impediment, um, that seemed quite unusual to me and precious. It was. It was the ultimate gift for someone who is companioning their parents at the end. And, you know, I could do a little bit of work when I was with them remotely. There was a remote world then as well, Cheryl. <laughs> <laughs> no, I know. <laughs> and, <laughs> well, <laughs> and, and, uh, but they didn't expect me to come to the office or, or do any kinds of programs out in the public at that point. And uh, what a tremendous gift it was. So you're right about that. Highly, highly unusual. It was the nonprofit world, which tends to be, have a little bit bigger hearts, but a still an incredibly rare gift for me. Absolutely. And and also, I suppose we could put it in the category of fortunate, if not lucky, the fact that you uh, there you had help. That really, it sounded as if the bulk of what you were doing was being with them. That's right. I didn't have to do the day to day care. Um, we had caregivers coming into their condominium, and uh, that allowed me to really be there for them uh, emotionally and spiritually and just to have a companion around, right? Absolutely. It doesn't mean that we were spending every second of the day together, but I might be in the living room and they might be in the bedroom and then we might come together for a meal. Right. But then I could go in and check on them and then I could hang in, hang out in the bedroom if they it seemed like that's something they needed or wanted. So it was the flexibility of being able to move in and out of spaces, physical spaces, to be with each other and not to be with each other, but to be close by was great was lovely. I'm, I'm highlighting that in particular because I, I think the, you know, I'm thinking of this in terms of this time of COVID, um, how mm. much impact the way people are dying is going to, how, how that's going to impact all of these millions and millions of grievers mm. that have now been added to the grieving world that it really does make a difference, those things, to, to feel you were able to be there and, and be with them and whatever happened in that period of time had the space to happen, <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. and there was uh, togetherness and communication. Uh, I feel that has, I know it's had an impact, it had such an impact on my grief with my wife uh, because mm -hmm. there was nothing that felt mistaken. Uh, there was Say the that again. Say that again. Nothing felt mistaken. Is that what you said? Yes. Nothing felt mistaken or out of place. If mm -hmm. she was going to die, we were able to do every everything that felt right to that circumstance. I, I wasn't. I wasn't thinking. I wish we could have. I would have liked to. I hate that. Mm -hmm. I feel mm -hmm. guilty that all those things mm -hmm. were not present. Mm -hmm. And they're so present for so many people, you know, and it was because of a certain, a certain kind of freedom. Hmm. Well, I noticed this for some people, not being able to, to memorialize or do kind of rituals 
at a gravesite or somewhere at a lake with ashes has deprived them of something very precious. And they've said it to me. I mean, there are people that have come to me and said, we haven't been able, and, and some of them have actually represented it this way. They've said, we haven't been able to grieve this properly. And that hole in their life is the, is the part around ritual and community, even if it was for a couple of hours. Um, you know, there's a lot of work involved in pulling that thing together. So there's this thinking deeply about relationships, about this person who's died, etc. They feel deprived mm -hmm. of being, having been able to grieve in the right way. Um, yes. And that's pretty profound. You're right. And it's reminding me of a, of a quote of Francis Wellers. I know we, we share an admiration for him. Mm -hmm. And uh, one of his quotes is, um, grief is, this, is the solitude of activity you can't do alone. This, the, the solitary, excuse me, the solitary activity you can't do alone, <laughs> you know, which rings is quite true to me. Mm. That's a bit what you're talking about, you know, it, ha it happens both inside of ourselves and we're the only one and all that, but also in community. Yeah, and I think that, so we've, we took away, COVID took away these precious rituals. And I think even what Francis might say, if I could take a wild guess at it, that sometimes those aren't even enough. Absolutely. I, I think you would agree with that statement absolutely completely. But to to be deprived of even that or being able to sit mm -hmm. by a bedside, or, mm -hmm. you know, um, all of those mm -hmm. things that um, are actions we take. And I've, I've noticed that now it's a year. So um, people have found, some people have found other ways to do those things. But there's still a sense of being deprived of the thing it would have been. Both, it's, it's both together. Yeah, and as you know, there's all kinds of hybrid ways that people have tried to figure out how to do this. So, you know, there's all the online kinds of services. And then people say, let's do something now, right after the death. And then when we can, let's do something much larger and affirming um, that includes more people that we can be with uh, in the future when we, we, when we can. Yeah, conversely for me, because I always see two sides of everything, mm. um, uh, a man I admired very much, but I didn't know that well. I'd known him in a pretty impactful context, and he died during COVID, not of COVID. And they had an online memorial. I never, ever in a million years would have been at his memorial if it had been in person. He mm. didn't live anywhere near me. I wasn't that close, you know, mm -hmm. and it was very moving to hear him talked about since I didn't know all of these various parts of his his life, you know. Mm -hmm. So there that is sort of uh I was aware of that as a as a kind of contrast to all the things that were we're not having. Mm -hmm. um, for I, me. I love those contrasts. Yeah. I absolutely. love those contrasts. Yeah. Absolutely. I, I figured you would. So uh lay the bed breadcrumbs between Losing your parents in a brief time after spending, uh, uh, you know, a, a dive down time with them as they as they yeah. left the left the earth, and um, your relationship to chaplaincy and poetry. Um, can you kind of 
uh, yeah, that, fill that it, in for me? Of course. I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna lay out the breadcrumbs now. I love that analogy. So, Cheryl, the um, I wrote poems, two poems, one for each of their respective memorial services, and uh, I the writing, the process of writing them was profound for me, just to write them. And um, I had the time, and I was able to just sit and each one do in its own time and not feel rushed about it. And um, let that experience of loss and grief sink in as I'm writing. Um, I wrote very short poems. That was the intention. I wasn't going to go on and on. And one of the reasons I wanted to write poetry was I knew that one of the things that people did at memorial services was, you know, talk about the life of this person. I knew people were going to do that. I had three siblings and they were going to do that, right? Mm -hmm. uh, let me tell you some stories about dad. Let me tell you some stories about mom. Right. You know what? <laughs> that, we covered that really well with three of us, right? So let's, let me do something different. I wanted to be able to say in six or eight or 10 lines something uniquely personal um, that could be said not with stories, but with images really quickly. It's almost like the, you know, in college or it, when you're writing and someone says, I only, I want 200 words. I can't do any, you know, I can't do more than 200 words. And mm. you're trying to take this big subject and squeeze it into 200 words. Well, sometimes that experience of writing in just 200 words is actually breathtaking because you're trying <laughs> to pull, right? Didn't the Times do a six word thing one? Oh, yes, I saw about that. Big subject. Yes. <laughs> no. so, um, and and having to distill. Yes. It's like a haiku in some ways, right? Right. And you take nine, whatever, 11, 12, 13 words, whatever they are, and put them in and represent an experience somehow, some way, so that you and the people who are listening get something deep out of it. And for me, it worked. I actually have, this is going to be funny, I have a my wife's cousin who's a poet, a published poet. And... Um, I hadn't really read any of his poetry, but at the end of the service, he said, Neil, that was a really good poem. And I have to tell you, Cheryl, I wasn't a poetry lover or writer before that. Well, you know, we're about, it's about time for a break, but what that makes me think yes. about is just the way that when there are people that write poetry every day who learn how to produce that quality even when they're not in a kind of altered state. <laughs> mm -hmm. But but I know for me, when I write a poetic, either a poem or something that's poetic, I'm in a bit of an altered state. And to me, yes. the time after someone has died is that kind of time. Yes. So it's interesting that that, uh, that is what came to you to do. And let's talk more, a little more about that when we come back. Listeners, you'll find links to my website and social media at the Good Grief page at Voice America. And uh, to sign up for my, my email list, there's a link, etc., etc. And to find Neil Barrison, go to griefandpoetry.com. Be back soon. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. 
What sets apart VoiceAmerica.tv from the other video content providers on the Internet? Choice and flexibility means that you can host your video content live or on demand on the main VoiceAmerica.tv channels through your own branded media player or your own private TV channel. We support multiple media formats, so all of your video content can be in one place. We offer a number of advertising and video packages. For more information, visit VoiceAmerica.tv. If you think you've seen online TV like this before, let us surprise you. Be sure to like the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel on Facebook. You'll find great health tips from the experts. Find out more about your favorite shows and talk back to our team. Search Voice America Health or click the like button under the player today. This is Good Grief host Cheryl Jones. Whether you're in grief, crisis, deep loss, or transition, working with the right therapist can move you forward like nothing else. That's why I'm happy to be sponsoring BetterHelp. Their user-friendly platform connects you with a therapist uniquely suited to support you. If you want to know more, follow the link on my host page or go to betterhelp.com slash goodgrief. That's betterhelp.com slash goodgrief and receive a 10% discount for the first month. listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back. This is your host, Cheryl Jones, and I've been talking with Neil Barrison, a counselor and chaplain who advocates for the use of poetry in work with people facing loss. And Neil, before the break, um, as the beginning of our of our talk about following breadcrumbs from your parents' deaths to your work with poetry in, in cases of loss, in situations of loss, um, you, were, you were talking about writing poems for them. Um, and I, I imagine you could say a little more about that. Um, just that experience of being called to that, because I do hear you thought about it, but I was imagining you also felt called to express yourself that way. Because, of yeah. course, you can have a million different people um, say what was important to them at a memorial about the person, but you wanted to do something different from that. Yeah, it was um, quite striking that I wanted to, to, to write. Um, I had written before, but again, not a lot of poetry in my life, very little. I wrote my, my wife, you know, love poems and I don't consider, that's, that's a very personal form of writing and it is poetry. It really is. And she used to say, this is really good, but I didn't believe her. (laughs) You know, it's like, oh, you love me. You're so damn biased, right? (laughs) So, but these were, you know, having my, my, again, my wife's cousin come up and say this, and then someone else who I deeply respected say it on both poems. I thought, these people don't mince words. They're not the kind of people who just sort of, you know, go through and say, this is great. This is great. This is great. You know, they're a little more serious. And... Mm. If they're saying this, Neil, wow. So it began, I began a process of doing more reading, reading poetry and 
um, I would say that it really took off when I decided to leave the nonprofit in 2017. I was at a, 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 on a project that I was losing some energy around. And at one point I, I thought to myself, you know what? Um, I wonder, I wonder about a changing, doing something different, an encore career of some sort, but I had no idea where to go with that. And were you already a counselor then? I had been, I was trained as a, I had a master's in school counseling. Gotcha. Okay. And in a sense, I had never, I worked in the schools for five years in my late twenties, early thirties, but then a lot of my work after that was nonprofit program management work. So this was coming full circle and it was a different kind of door, but I had an experience and it was life changing and it, and not just, so the first life changing, and I don't mean to, I wish I didn't call the first life changing, but the first was my parents, being with my parents at the end of their lives. I think the second one was my niece, a rabbi who was in training at the time, did an internship in chaplaincy in a hospital here in Philadelphia. And at the end of the experience, at a social gathering, family gathering, said, Neil, you'd be really good at this. And that's when everything started to click. How did I not think of this as a pathway Hmm. until this moment? And I started to do research and I started to talk to to some local chaplains. And I enrolled in an internship in a local hospital. I mean, I applied and I was accepted. And at that time, when I started to do that work in that hospital, I had the idea that I was going to carry a notebook. But initially, the notebook was going to be for prayers. I don't have a master's in divinity, right? I'm Jewish. I know prayers, but I don't know them by heart. I don't Mm. know the ins and outs of praying and when and how (laughs) and what and and. And beyond Judaism, not not a whole lot about the other religions of the world, and you need to be schooled in all these to be able to be to to be able to meet people's needs where they are when you're in a hospital setting. So the idea of the notebook was to carry some prayers of many different faiths, right? That spoke to me that I think could speak to some of the patients and families. What ended up happening was I started to tape in not just prayers but poems. Poems that spoke to me. Can I give you an example of one? Absolutely. I was so, hoping you would along the line. <laughs> so this is this is literally uh, taped in page, on page four of my probably 200-page notebook. Page four, so I might have had at this point 20 poems in the book, and now I have close to 250. Failing and flying. I'm going to say that again. It's not easy to hear. Failing and Flying by Jack Gilbert. Everyone forgets that Icarus also flew. It's not the same when love comes to an end or the marriage fails and people say they knew it was a mistake, that everybody said it would never work, that she was old enough to know better. But anything worth doing is worth doing badly. like being there by that summer ocean on the other side of the island while love was fading out of her, the stars burning so extravagantly those nights that anyone could tell you they would never last. Every morning she was asleep in my bed like a visitation, the gentleness in her like antelope standing in the dawn mist, 
Each afternoon I watched her coming back through the hot stony field after swimming, the sea light behind her and the huge sky on the other side of that, listened to her while we ate lunch. How can they say the marriage failed? Like the people who came back from Provence, when it was Provence, and said it was pretty, but the food was greasy. I believe Icarus was not failing as he fell, but just coming to the end of his triumph. I love that last line. Not not failing as he fell, but coming to the end of his triumph. Mm. I like I you know, like I, it too. Yeah, go ahead. Um what it what it I've been sitting here cogitating the difference for me when I read um, moving prose mm. and when I read poetry. Mm. Um, of course, moving prose for me is usually poetic, <laughs> but <laughs> but still, there's it's different, right? And um, I I feel as if a poem, in general, will kind of there's nothing very mental about it. Uh, it's it's very emotional for me anyway. Um, to, I don't know. That is not well spoken. And you you let, immerse let me try yourself. To, let me try to do something. Let me try to do something. When I, when I I learned one thing early on in the use of poetry with patients and families, I learned that sometimes uh, I it, it's it's better. And I would ask the patient or family if they could do this or were willing to, to let just let the the poem fall on them, and wherever it lands, it lands, and to not try to understand it too much, if you could, to suspend your mind, right? Mm, yes. I think that that I think that that is sometimes helpful for someone who can do that, right? So, we were taught, those of us who study poetry, and I can't say that I studied poetry, but I've been told over and over again, that we're taught to analyze these, these words to death. Pardon the pun here. But it, we, you know, what was the poet thinking? What does this image mean? How does this relate to this part of the poem and this other part of the poem? Where is the motifs? On and on and on. And I like to think that this is really about a mindfulness and meditation on words. How do the words speak? And maybe how does the silence also before the poem, in the middle of the poem, and at the end of the poem speak to you? I, I just recalled a, a teacher I had. His name was Dick Olney, amazing teacher and, and therapist and man. Mm. And... Um, he, he used to say, the map is, no, is never the territory. Writing about something or a poem about something is not the thing, right? <laughs> but mm -hmm. he, said, he said, but poetry is as close as you can get. That's beautiful. Yeah. And I'm also reminded when I talk about silence and, and what we get out of that silence and how it's next to the words is like Rumi's uh, words where the lips are silent, the heart has a thousand tongues. Hmm. The same idea, isn't it? Yeah, I think so. And so then you, um, 
I know from reading your article that this became very moving in terms of how it affected the people you were working with as a chaplain. Um, Is there someone who stands out that you shared a poem with that you were particularly um, moved by the result with them? Oh, gosh, dozens. If you want me to think of one, I can. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Um, I'd love for you to share one or two experiences of that because... um, you know, this is the kind of, my my very best friend is a yeah. chaplain and therapist. She was a therapist for 30 years before mm-hmm. she became a chaplain. And uh, similarly to you, maybe she's she's been a meditator since she was a teenager, um, raised in a Jewish tradition, still practices some of that, knew a lot of Jewish prayers and Jewish songs. Um, and I felt as if talking with her, and deciphering the difference between chaplaincy and therapy, let's say, uh-huh. she was more at liberty to bring in poems, songs in that in that setting. Whereas a social worker in a hospital environment wouldn't do that, uh-huh. you know. So it's kind of a doorway you have um, that other disciplines maybe don't. Is that a understanding that? that is accurate? I think others, other disciplines could bring it in, but I think because we have been essentially assigned as chaplains, kind of the spiritual, emotional, religious realm, I think it lends itself most to poetry because poetry Mm. is really sacred. It really is. Mm. So it's kind of getting at sacredness and things that are beyond kind of, the uh, obvious, the mysteries of life. I also, it occurs to me that kind of like palliative care, there are problems maybe you solve, but your your main goal is to be with someone, which I think does lend itself to a different um, opening, perhaps, at its best anyway. <laughs> when, it, when it's at its best and we cannot be rushed, um, we can sit with people. And as we do our spiritual, emotional, social, whatever, our full assessment, it's not just around religion, it's about all these things that if the holistic, again, this is all about holistic health, the wellness of the person, we, if we stay and sit and really sit, we can learn so much about what is giving them hope, if anything, what is, is Mm -hmm. there hope? Is there hopelessness here? Who's supporting them? All those questions. And we try not to ask too many, but we have to get at certain things to do a good assessment so we can inform the rest of the team about it. Sure. But I think you're right. I think that we, it's very, how often does other disciplines, I guess social work does, come in and sit down, right? That's also a statement when I sit. I sit, I'm going to be here with you now, right? Exactly. Uh, most, most disciplines just stand around the bed. And so who comes to your mind at this moment of someone who's really stuck with you over time that Gosh, you you brought yeah. in a poem and it just changed the room, if you know what I mean. Yeah. Um, I yeah. mean, I've certainly had that experience, so I'm sort of thinking about that. But um, those sure. moments. Well, uh, this is unusual in the way this happened, but there was a woman in the hospital and when I was doing my residency in Delaware who had such a traumatic life, Uh, one daughter, 
uh, an addict, um, all kinds of medical drugs. Um, she had some serious physical issues. She was only in her 40s. And she had all kinds of trust issues. She yelled at nurses all the time. She yelled at doctors all the time. And a lot of our work together was reading poetry. And she, essentially, I would visit her twice a week. She was there for months, Cheryl, months. Mm. Uh, just that would, on its own would make you grumpy. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yes. She had plenty to be grumpy about, and she had a life of hell. She came from a life of hell. And these poems for her were oh, a break from her life, a respite from this anxious, crazy life. They were beauty in a world that had gone sour. Um, she would ask for copies of most everything I read. She collected them. Mm. She was uh, so comforted by the words. And she was still searching. I think that's what made her special. And even with all of this pain and suffering, she was still searching for truth and beauty, which is pretty remarkable given what she had been through. It occurs to me that um, I guess there's poetry, not the kind that usually draws me though, that is reflective of the past and all kinds of, but the poetry I love tends to be very present mm. in, in a particular moment. And mm. to me that would that would support what what she experienced because in the now without the everything <laughs> you can usually be pretty well right mm -hmm. <laughs> if you're if you're just right here right now listening to these words wash wash over you and not being kind of too much reminded of all the stuff it's a different experience of oneself yes Yes, and then there were times in the middle of a poem where she just break down into tears, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And um, tears can be an opening. For mm -hmm. sure. It's already time yeah. for our second break. Let's wow, come back fast. and talk more. <laughs> I know it goes fast, huh? Let's talk more after the break. And uh, listeners, you can go to weatheringgrief.com, my website, or to find Neil Barrison, you can go to griefandpoetry.com. Back soon. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Healthcare has been a major part of news stories today with one thing that has been consistent, inconsistency. Both healthcare providers and patients have to work around and get used to a constantly changing set of rules and issues. Nurses have historically been left out of this decision-making. Listen to Once a Nurse, Always a Nurse, exploring the world of nursing with host Leanne Meyer. Health professionals, we invite you to share your ideas and experiences while listening to experts in various areas of nursing. Listen Mondays at 1 p.m. Eastern, 10 a.m. Pacific on Voice America Health and Wellness. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. 
with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back to Good Grief. I've been talking with Neil Barrison, a counselor and chap chaplain who uses poetry in his work uh and we've we've uh you shared one poem i hope you'll share another in this last segment of our time together uh but this this idea that someone who was brittle basically mm-hmm. could with with the the help of a of a poem that touched her open and um you know, I do think that's possibly a quality of things like that. I was I was just telling you during the break about my choir st- singing the the spiritual steel away at mm. both of my parents' memorials, and when I sing that song, I do not sing that song or hear that song without an opening, usually tears, mm. and and it's not so much remembering losing my parents and memorial and all that it's beauty it's it's uh they were both practicing christians which i'm not um Mm -hmm. but that the idea of that song which is that you're being held and carried to another life right when you die um that it's safe that you're protected had a lot of meaning for them um and so when I hear it, because it also has meaning for me, it connected us. So I wonder about that aspect of it in your mind, this way that, that words that both people can relate to, even in radically different experiences, um, bring some sense of connection. No question. Um, the reading, it's, it might surprise folks, but... Maybe not those who know poetry, but when you read to somebody, you are slowing down time, especially if you read the poem slowly. You're allowing people to find their heart sometimes. You're also, it's creating the space, this sacred space for them to have memories and associations with the words can't tell you there was more more several many times people would interrupt the poem was surprising in the middle and say oh my god that reminds me of this, uh-huh. or this, or this. <laughs> like so you know part of what chaplaincy is is understanding listening companioning but getting into the heart of someone's narrative or story well what better way to have beauty in words help people Remind them of memories or have associations to something in the poem. This is our way to get to know this person. What do they respond to? What resonates with them? What matters to them most? These are all the ultimate questions of of what we do as counselors and chaplains is we want to know the real story as close to the heart as possible. Absolutely. But then the other thing we haven't touched on, I just feel it's important to say in this is, you emphasized in your article that you always ask the person if they want a poem. Mm. 
Absolutely. Even though experience tells you most people say yes. I've never had anybody say no, Cheryl, in hundreds and hundreds of encounters. But the ask is still important, isn't it? Oh, God, yes. (laughs) Because I imagine you would get a lot more no's, you know, uh, non-verbally if you hadn't asked. Isn't this about like when when caregivers or doctors or anyone walks into a hospital room and doesn't knock first? Come on. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my gosh. Yes. In 10 (laughs) years. Don't get me going here, right? Don't get you going I experienced that infinite numbers of times. People walk in who don't find out who's in the room, which was bad at the time because we were two women and they, mm. you know, act like we, I was a caregiver. I don't know what they thought I was, mm. but they didn't get that. You know, all mm. of these ways you can just alienate the person so much. So I felt mm. that was important to get in there. But I wonder mm. if you'd share maybe a poem that has special, special meaning to you. You know, to me, I know I oh. have, I know I have my favorites. <laughs> they, like I have, have my favorites, but I'm, I'm getting a little tired of my favorites, but I'm happy to, to read well, one of my. Especially meaningful uh, at the moment. You mean so in my not, life today? Is that what you mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, okay, sure. That's easy enough. Really easy. Um, I think because of Black Lives Matter and where we are as a nation, this one is really stunning. It's called The Times by Lucille Clifton. It is hard to remain human on a day when birds perch weeping in the trees and the squirrel eyes do not look away, but the dog ones do in pity. Another child has killed a child. And as I catch myself relieved that they are white and I might understand, except that I am tired of understanding If this alphabet could speak its own tongue, it would be all symbol, surely. The cat would hunch across the long table, and that would mean time is catching up, and the spindle fish would run to ground, and that would mean the end is coming, and the grains of dust would gather themselves along the streets and spell out, these two are are your children, this too is your child. Beautiful. Yeah. Uh, I think, uh, you know, I used to write poetry when I was young, and then I switched to writing songs. But Mm -hmm. they made me feel the same. The writing of a poem or a song um, made me feel the same relief of expression, I guess, (laughs) is Mm -hmm. how how I would put it. Mm-hmm. And um, when, I guess it was the day after the 2016 election. No, it, it was probably two days because the day after I was, I think I was in bed. But <laughs> the next day, mm-hmm. um, we were driving in the car and I said to my wife, I wonder what songs will be written of these times. Uh and then the very next day after that, an incredible musician who has been on my show a couple of times, who's a friend, Melanie Demore, we went to a community sing that she was doing, obviously planned a lot before that. And she had already written a song, uh, an, a, a song of support, inspiration, very poetic um, song. And so I think about that, that all these poems came out of a moment for the person who wrote them. 
that really mattered, mm. you know, that mm-hmm. that deserved an expression that then touches us, and then if we share it, it touches somebody else um, in the same way that I suppose originally things like Jacob's Ladder were an experience, or, you know, <laughs> um, we, we express ourselves as human out of experience. So I sometimes think of the people sitting, conjuring a poem about grief and what must have been going on in their lives. Mm. And I want to make sure that people understand that the poems that I read are not just about grief okay, or loss. I, I imagine, but some depth of human experience, though. Of course. I would guess. <laughs> yeah, since, of course. Since that's, um, that's what you're working with. Uh, of course, maybe I've gone way too far with this, but I find grief in everything now. <laughs> we're we're always struggling over what we've lost and what we're trying to gain, and you know, <laughs> right, right, right. It's kind of at the heart of the human experience. That that's might interesting. Be me uh, though. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I wonder in all these poems, I imagine that eighty-five to ninety percent, you would either find grief or loss in them. Just somehow, it would sneak in, <laughs> right. Yes. So, yeah, yeah. And I, I've also noticed, uh, I, I believe what drew me changed a lot uh, after yeah. I had a very deep experience of loss. Mm. Uh, when, I, when I read something and I deeply resonate, there is yeah. usually a loss in it. <laughs> so I may be um, unwittingly, you know, sort of um, siphoning off um, poems that don't speak to that. Uh, you know, I've, I've been drawn to someone's work many times and then, and thought, well, they're not talking about any kind of loss, but I'm really drawn. And then I'll, they'll share their full biography and they've come to what they do because of a deep loss, Mm -hmm. (laughs) because of a deep challenge. I guess Mm -hmm. it's a, a bit of a, a truism about being, um, about human growth that it often comes from, from pain. Yeah, I think as many writers have talked about that this this business of grief and loss is um, it softens our hearts big time and it helps us uh, when we can and when we're ready to begin to transform and move with it, with our grief to something else. But as Francis Weller would say, you know, from the depths of grief come the joy Right. So without the depths of grief and really getting sitting with it and being in it and knowing it and feeling it, you can't experience the the joyous the joyous joys in the same way. You'll be warding off and I'm speaking personally because I certainly was like this before uh, going through deep challenge or deep loss, kind of warding off the the experiences we think are bad wards mm. everything off a little bit <laughs> you know it, it's it's not possible to pick and choose right i would love to read you another one you would love to read my what i would love to read you another one oh another uh, one oh, pardon me i was leaning <laughs> on my, hard to my hear mouth you. so pardon sorry me. yes absolutely we have we have you know about three minutes left so we have time Okay, so this is The Blessing of the Morning Light by David White. 
The blessing of the morning light to you, may it find you even in your invisible appearances. May you be seen to have risen from some other place you know and have known in the darkness and that carries all you need. May you see what is hidden in you as a place of hospitality and shadowed shelter. May that hidden darkness be your gift to give. May you hold that shadow to the light and the silence of that shelter to the word of the light. May you join all of your previous disappearances with this new appearance, this new morning, this being seen again, new and newly alive. New and newly alive. May we have as many experiences as possible of that in our lifetimes, huh? Really. In this last little minute, I have a curiosity we may not be able to finish, but do you find a difference between the use of poetry when you were being a chaplain and now when you share poetry as a counselor? Is there a difference? Um, chaplaincy work is different in the sense that a lot of people you may only see once or twice. In a counseling private practice, you're seeing people often once a week or once every other week, but you know, at least a couple times, if not more. Mm -hmm. So in that way, it's uniquely different. Um, and you are, you know, I'm, I'm using poetry in the hospital, um, I mean, to me, that's the major difference. Am I finding it different in the work? I was initially, I think, when I opened the private practice, I didn't feel as compelled to read the poetry, even though I did. And I don't know why, Cheryl. I'm still yeah. searching for that. However, to finish this statement, it I'm using it more now. Today, I read two poems to somebody three quarters of the way through a session, and it opened some things for her in ways that I didn't expect. Mm -hmm. We're going to yeah. have to end it for there, but I think that's a very interesting thing. I'm going to give that some ponder when we get <laughs> off. Thanks very much for being with me today. My pleasure. When you, when you want to find Neil Barrison and his thoughts on poetry, go to griefandpoetry.com. Next week, I'll have Esther Amini to talk about her book, Concealed, Memoir of a Jewish-Iranian Daughter Caught Between the Charor and America. This has been Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. I look forward to being with you again next week for another meaningful conversation. Thank you so much for joining us for Good Grief. Please come back next Wednesday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific Time for another edition featuring your host, Cheryl Jones, on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Have a meaningful week. Abre mi corazón. 